to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. That's our text. The topic, the apostles instruct the church to choose seven men to wait on the tables of the widows. Title of our message is Tips for Waiters. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word." And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumba, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I I might have mispronounced that one, I think. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this text. We pray, Lord, that we put ourselves in it and uh, see many, many wonderful things about how you can fill and empower and bless us, Lord, as members of a congregation, as servants within that fellowship of believers. We require, Lord, the presence of your Holy Spirit going from heart to heart, opening our ears to hear the word, your word. Bless it, Lord, to us, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. The last time we estimated the total number of believers in the book of Acts, we said it was around 10,000. The first church was a mega church. What size staff would a church of 10,000 people have today? It would be a huge staff. The first church had a staff of 12 men. That's approximately one man for every 1,000 believers. Add to that the fact that they restricted themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. How could so few accomplish so much? We see how they could accomplish so much in these verses in chapter 6. God gifted these men and gave them to his church to teach the word. As the word spread and needs became apparent, those who had received the word were raised up by God to meet the needs. The staff of the church was the 12 plus every able-bodied believer. Tucked away in this passage is an illustration. The words serve tables in verse 2 can refer to a waiter serving food. The apostles said it wasn't desirable that they both prepare the food and then serve it. Think of a four-star restaurant. You want the chef in the kitchen and a staff of waiters and waitresses buzzing around you. Think of the church as a staff of waiters and waitresses waiting for the order to come up so that they can serve. I'll organize my thoughts on these verses around two points. Number one, you are given gifted men who wait upon God's word 
And number two, you are gifted men and women who waiter God's word. First of all, in verses one and two, you are given gifted men who wait upon God's word. Two distinct groups of Jews were in Jerusalem. Uh, The native Jews were called Hebrews, descendants of the exiled Jews who returned from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra. They were intensely nationalistic, vigilant in the observance of the law and the traditions of the Jewish religion. They spoke either Hebrew or a form of the ancient language we know as Aramaic. The other group of Jews was called Hellenists. The word refers to Greek-speaking Jews, or more accurately, Jews living in the Greek-speaking world around the Mediterranean who maintained their religion through the synagogues in their own cities. Some were descendants of the dispersion, Jews who did not return to the Holy Land after the exile and who were scattered around in various nations and cities. Others were part of the large number of Jewish merchants drawn away from Jerusalem for economic and business enterprises. And so from a purely kind of a a overview position, you'd have the the Hebrews were more the local Jews who, who considered themselves the real Jews. And then there were the Jews who didn't come back after the exile, who were still spread around the world and and were now in Jerusalem, having gotten saved on uh, the Feast of Pentecost. These were the Hellenists. It's like that among many people groups. The Italians have a thing like this going on. Uh, People who are from Sicily think that Sicily is its own country. They don't recognize it as part of Italy. Uh, And so you have the Italians, and then you have the Sicilians, the real Italians. And uh, so anyway, you have this kind of thing in, among many different groups. Attention and prejudice between these two groups had grown through the years. They didn't like one another. Here they were now together in the church, Hebrews and Hellenists, and so a problem arose between them. In verse 1, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The first church helped widows. The Hellenists felt that their widows were being overlooked. They assumed it was deliberate. Their complaint may have been justified, but the overlook may have been accidental. We don't know. You may have a complaint, and it may be justified, but that doesn't mean you're being overlooked or mistreated deliberately. We need to be careful ascribing motives to people. Only God knows the heart. But in their case, because of this age-old prejudice, they noticed that somehow the, Hel- the Hellenists were not getting as much food or help, and so they brought this complaint. And so in verse 2, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Earlier in Acts, we saw that believers with means were selling property and bringing the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to those less fortunate. And this was something that in this one area was going out to the widows. 
the numeric growth of the church put a strain on their distribution of money and other physical helps. It wasn't beneath the apostles to serve tables. They were doing it up until now. It wasn't desirable for the believers that they devote any more time to serving tables at the expense of prayer and the word. John Phillips put it like this, there was no point in the apostles doing something anyone could do when they should do things no one else could do. And that's just a great way of understanding that. A lot of times in the church, people see the distribution of duties, and, and, and it seems like sometimes in the work world, well, you know, that's beneath me. Uh, you know, your boss would never do this. I mean, that's why he's the boss. And, you know, you work in, in the everyday world, you kind of are, are working to do less work. I mean, that, that's the, the whole idea. Uh, and, you know, until you, you get to retirement and when you do no work, you know, and so your whole life you're working hard to do less work. A guy with seniority does less than the guy without seniority and such. And so sometimes we, we look in the church and we see people in the distribution of duties and we think, well, you know, they act like that's beneath them. That's not it at all. There's no point in doing something anyone could do when you're called to do something no one else is called to do. And so that was the attitude that they had, and it's a very smart one. Thus they establish for us the understanding also that the church's primary function is to build you up spiritually. The apostle said, here's what we're all about. We pray and we teach the word because that is the fundamental purpose of the church as it exalts Jesus Christ, is to build up believers. I'm glad that it was the daily distribution that was strained and not their praying and ministry of the word. This could have went the other way. They could have become a strictly social agency at this point and said, you know, guys, you're right, these poor widows, uh, let's cut back our Bible study and our evangelism because after all, you know, if you're not feeding the widows, how, how Christ-like is that? No one was complaining that their Bible studies were dry or that they were teaching the same thing over and over again. It's not a bad thing when there are unmet needs in a church as long as the ministry of prayer and the word is solid. In fact, unmet needs are what agitate people into serving oftentimes. Unmet needs only mean that believers who are receiving the word need to step up and serve the tables. God gives the church gifted men. The apostle Paul lists them in Ephesians chapter four. There Paul writes and he says, God himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers. Earlier in the letter, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He said that apostles and prophets were men who laid the foundation for the church. There are no apostles today who meet the qualifications listed by Peter in the first chapter of the book of Acts. While we sometimes you'll see on a sign or people are called apostles, there aren't any apostles like these 12 apostles because they don't meet the criteria listed in Acts chapter 1. 
Though some people in the church will have the gift of prophecy, they are not prophets in the first century sense of speaking forth the word of God. Apostles and prophets, Paul said, laid the foundation of the church. Now evangelists and pastor teachers are the gifted men given to the church who build upon this foundation in the tradition of the apostles and prophets. So they ought to be men who are men of praying. Uh, praying. That's how deep I'm into it. I'm praying. Men who are men of prayer and the word. And so if you follow the progression, there were apostles and prophets who were given to the study of the word and to prayer, and, and, and so this position, in a sense, is taken over by these other men today. As much as is possible, evangelists and pastor teachers should be focused on prayer and the ministry of God's word. It is not desirable for any congregation to have their pastor or pastors leave the word for other ministry, even good and necessary ministry, because then the body is not being built up and fed and encouraged properly. Instead, the pastor ought to wait upon God's word. Others are then raised up to waiter and waitress God's word. And that brings us to our second point, verses 3 through 7. You are the gifted men and women who waiter God's word. Having set forth their priority, the apostles tell the multitude how they ought to proceed. Therefore, brethren, verse 3, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. These are four prerequisites for all service in the church. This was a unique and specific service these guys were being called to, but these are the criteria, the prerequisites of all service in the church. Number one, they are from among you. Now that reminds us that a person must be born again to serve in God's church. It may sound basic, but you'd be surprised how many people serve in churches who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've had many people tell me that before they got saved, before they knew Christ personally, they were serving as elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers or on some committee or board in their other church or in a previous church. Uh, and and it's, it's not as uncommon as you would think for unsaved individuals to be serving uh, in critical capacities or in any capacity, really, in the church. I would add to this also, not as a hard and fast rule, but just as an observation, as much as possible, you should first look within your own fellowship for servants. Uh, you know, sometimes... As a church, you, you know, have a certain position that needs to be filled, perhaps, or a ministry that needs to be taken care of that requires special skill, and maybe no one has that special skill, and so you might have to look outside the boundaries of the particular congregation and get another Christian from somewhere else. Uh, you, you know, I've been involved over the years just a couple of times, but blessedly so, in recommending guys to go pastor churches 
uh, because within that church, they, there just wasn't anyone with the gift of pastor teacher, and, and there are these other guys being raised up in different capacities, and so then they come and, and they pass. So it's, you should, in a normal sense, look for Christians who are already in that fellowship uh, because God wants to raise up people from within. The second prerequisite is a good reputation. Now, that's from uh, the same root word, I'm told, for the word witness. And so they should have a good witness. And there's two ways of looking at that. First of all, they should have a good witness. People ought to look at them and, 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 and see that they're living the Christian life and, and you know, there's nothing really... Uh, hanging over them, there's no reason to shy away from them. They're, they're just solid, everyday Christians. But then they too should have an attitude that they want to continue living to be good witnesses and making decisions that are consistent with projecting a good witness. I remember one guy a few years ago, and, and this is, isn't really a criticism, it's just an observation, uh, he was in a position where he was overseeing a, a, a home fellowship that they wanted to turn into a church. And um, he at one time thought maybe God was calling him to be the pastor of that group. And then after a, a while, uh, you know, he, he told me, he says, I don't really feel called to be a pastor. And I said, well, why not? And this wasn't the major reason, but he said one reason was he didn't like people scrutinizing his life. He didn't want people... Uh, you know, making judgments about different things in his life. He didn't want to live a certain way that he thought he had to live in order uh, to, you know, be in that position. Uh, I think it was a little bit extreme at the time, but I understood that, you know. And, and, and he, in that sense, he, he didn't want to live in such a way as to be in that position. He wanted to have a little bit more freedom, I guess, uh, to, to watch things or do things or whatever it might be. And that's a tough call, but so anyway, on the one hand, you already have to have a good witness. On the other, you should be a person concerned about your witness because what happens is just because you're doing good now doesn't mean a year from now you're still going to be doing okay. And so you, you should look at a person who has some track record and think, are they going to continue to have a good testimony? The third prerequisite is that you're full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's interesting to me because all believers are commanded to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the normal Christian life to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea here seems to be that you are looking for people who are living that normal, Spirit-filled Christian life. Another way of putting it, you don't put someone into a place of service in order to help them become more spiritual. This is a common error in our thinking and in our administration in some churches. Hey, if we can get that guy or that gal involved serving, it will help them to become more spiritual. That's a bad way of, of going at it. You should look for people who are already walking with the Lord full of the Holy Spirit and then there will be an idea that they will continue that way. You don't get them up to speed by putting them over a Sunday school class or making them a greeter or anything like that. And so we're looking for people who are full of the Holy Spirit. And the fourth characteristic is full of wisdom. 
We might call it sanctified common sense. Not everyone who is a Christian with a good witness full of the Holy Spirit has common sense. Uh, they don't, uh, we don't all have you know, that kind of wisdom and tact and ability in a particular area. And so we need all four of those, the first three, uh, you know, specifically, but then the fourth, depending on what the ministry is, we're looking for a person who has some common sense in that area. Not necessarily experience, but somebody who can think things through in a common sense kind of a way. Now, there's nothing symbolic about the number seven. Commentators point out that seven was the usual number of men on a Jewish court, but we can't really know if that was their reasoning for choosing seven. The apostles must have thought seven guys could handle the task easily. Maybe they had a rotation even where one of them was on call each day of the week. Hey, uh, Stephen, you take Mondays. Philip, you take Tuesdays. Pumbaa, you take Thursdays. You know, all, all the way down through the line. And, and they would be in charge of that that particular day. Their task was defined as serving tables. That can mean waitering or waitressing, but it also has a larger application. In those days, money lenders and exchangers were described as those who sat at tables because that's what they did. Uh, they didn't really have banks. Uh, they just set up a table outdoors and, and uh, kind of like the Monday sale, I, I guess, would be an example of that. They just set up somewhere. Uh, and this is, these are the people who would, we would call bankers. Serving tables doesn't just refer to physically setting down a meal in front of a widow. It wasn't that they ran a soup kitchen. It carries with it the idea of administrating and distributing benevolence funds and other physical helps. And we don't even know if it was just the food that, that was a problem for widows. They had a, they had a big population of widows. The Jewish uh, people had a, a history and tradition of taking care of their widows. That carried over into the first church. And, and whether it was food or goods or monies or whatever it was, the Hellenist widows were not getting their fair share and so they needed to find these men who could serve as bankers, in a sense, over the benevolence funds and goods and distribute them properly. Verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles would continue to devote themselves to their God-assigned tasks, there are times, even in the church, when you say, hey, that's not what I'm called to be doing. I mean, it, it's a tough call because sometimes there's needs that need to be met. And then there's other times you say, you know, that's not what I'm called to be doing. Uh, and and it, we walk a fine line there. But the apostles knew in this case, hey, we can't leave the ministry God's called us to of praying and teaching the word and proclaiming the gospel in order to take care of this. This is something only we can do, not, not that we're so gifted, but you know, naturally, but supernaturally, God's called us to it. This is something anyone who meets these four qualifications can do. 
Do you know what your God-assigned tasks are? Well, sure you do. At least you know most of them. Just look at what you are and you'll see them. If you're a father or a mother, a son or a daughter, then those are God-assigned tasks. You're either an employer or an employee, a teacher or a student, and those are your God-assigned tasks. You'll find lots of instruction about them and all other such assignments on the pages of the Bible. And so in, in large measure, we already know what our assignment is based on spirit-led choices that we've made that have brought us into other relationships with people and uh, institutions. And we read the Bible and say, okay, here's how I should act and react in this task. In the church, it can be a little harder sometimes to discover your assignments. The first thing to realize is that you most definitely are called upon to serve. God will raise you up to meet certain needs. As you receive the prepared word, you are to waiter it, to serve it to others in very practical ways. That's how the church works. Verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte from Antioch. The seven men all had Hellenist names. It could be that they all were from the Hellenist group. I like that because it was Hellenists who brought the complaint. The congregation then put the responsibility on them to serve. As someone once said, the one who rows a boat seldom has time to rock it. I like that. We do something like this here at Calvary Hanford. Often, though not always, if a person has some concern or complaint, we try to involve them in resolving it. It's a very scriptural thing to do. Uh, it, either, you know, it either resolves it by them serving in that area or the complaint just seems to go away at that point. And, and I, I smile, people rarely ask me things anymore because they're afraid I'm going to put them in charge of it. And, uh, but that's smart and spiritual. Okay, you Hellenists, you, yeah, okay, here's the, okay, well, what are you guys gonna do about it? Here you go. Have a field day. Knock yourself out. Take care of the widows. The truth is we can't be sure these seven were all Hellenists. Many Hebrews had Greek names or were called by the Greek equivalent of their Hebrew name. We'll see in a few chapters Saul of Tarsus, who was called what? Paul. And so everybody had a couple of names back then. And so just because this is how Luke lists the names, he doesn't say they were all Hellenists. They may have been, may have been a, a combination of the two. The only men we know anything about from the Bible are the first two. Stephen will become the first martyr. Philip will become the first missionary. It tells us that serving God is rewarded with greater service. As you grow in the Lord, you should always be doing more in his church, never less. And something you need to get through our heads, all of us. As we grow in the Lord, as we're maturing, God gives us more and more and more to do. As I've said many times before, it's the exact opposite of what you're trying to accomplish in your career. 
of having less and less and less to do until finally you wake up that one glorious morning and you're retired and you can do what you want to do. God bless you. The church is the opposite of that. You should be loading yourself on with more and more spiritual responsibility all the time. It says in verse six, whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. The laying on of hands derives from the Old Testament sacrifices. When you brought your sacrifice, you laid your hands on it to identify with it. The animal was taking your place. When we lay hands on a person, we are identifying with them, standing with them in their place. This episode is often referred to as the choosing of the first deacons in the church. The New Testament mentions evangelists, pastor, teachers, and it goes on to talk about elders and deacons as offices in the church. Certainly these seven men became the model for the office of a deacon. When you study church government from the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, you look back upon these guys for some clues. Now, it's true that the word deacon derives from the words used in these verses, but what's interesting is that both the seven and the apostles are described by those words in this chapter. And it's not saying that the apostles were deacons and the deacons were deacons. The word really just has to do with serving in general. Here's what I'm getting at. The apostles were not here establishing any new office in the church. That would develop later in the story of the church when Paul the apostle would write and looking back on the church and giving instruction to the church, say, now here's what you want to do. You want to have a pastor teacher who chooses elders, who choose deacons, and these men function together in the church. But the apostles are not doing that here. They simply recognize seven men whom God had raised up to meet a specific need in the church at that time. Now, I think this is important, maybe the most important thing this morning. The church is not an organization. It's an organism, a living thing. It should only be organized when there is a compelling reason to do so, and then as little as possible. If we pray and minister God's word, folks will gather. As we gather, needs will emerge. Rather than be upset there are needs, we should recognize that God wants to meet those needs. He meets the needs through believers who have been built up. They are then raised up to serve. It's a natural organization that flows from the life of the church as an organism. And, and so, you know, it's, you know, when you start getting into, and, and I'm not, not down on all of this because there is obviously a certain amount of organization, but when you get into some of these situations, I mean, with charters and constitutions and flow charts and I mean you know I've seen churches of 30 and 40 people that have documents four or five hundred pages long of, of how they're how they operate in every possible situation how we discipline our members how we choose people to serve on the diaconate board and they have five or six different boards and uh, you know multitudes of committees and and there's so much organization there's no organism 
Everything is just all lined out and dialed out and there's elections and ballots and secret ballots and behind the scenes meetings and bylaws and all those kinds of things. It's just crazy. We look at this episode and we immediately think, oh, they were choosing the first seven deacons of the church. No, they weren't. They chose seven guys out of the 10,000 to serve the needs of the widows. Later, you'd go back and say, now, if we're going to have the office of a deacon in the church, they ought to be a lot like these guys. In fact, in a few minutes here in chapter 7, Stephen's going to die. Philip's going to be sent out. And so they weren't really, it wasn't a thing where then they said, ooh, you know, we have to have an election to take, you know, Stephen's place. Who's going to take Uh, you know, Philip's place, now that he's gone, we need to elect new deacons. They didn't have that kind of organization. So we want to always keep our organization as simple as possible. While I'm on this subject, it's kind of of funny to me, really, because I remember a few years ago, we had a, a disgruntled couple in our church. It's about 15 or 17 years ago. And one of their complaints was that we didn't have enough elders per person in the church. And they had come up with a number that you had to have. I think at the time, you had to have one elder per 100 people in the church. These guys were 12 apostles with over 10,000 people in the church. And they really got big-minded and said, let's have seven guys take care of the widows and let's just press on. And so there are no numbers there is no organization like that. There's, there's not a flow chart where you say this is the numeric you know, equivalent of how many people that we need to have. Everything is fluid. It's how God is working in a congregation. And that is why we must continue in prayer. This is why they said we will continue in prayer and the word of God. They didn't just pray for their teaching or pray in general. They were praying about how to be led. God, this thing that you're doing, drawing people to us, thousands upon thousands of people, we need to pray about it so that we don't ruin it. And so we want to give ourselves to prayer for leading so that we don't go off in a million different directions meeting needs that don't really exist or that God isn't really identifying. And so we pray, we serve the word, real needs emerge, and we believe God then raises up the right people to meet those needs, people who meet the prerequisites we talked about. Here's a simple way of putting what I'm saying. While there is such a thing as the office of a deacon in the church, every believer can and should be deaconing. And that is why I said that the apostles were not here establishing an office. They were encouraging every member of the fellowship of believers to be ready and available to serve. This was the impact. People were saying, hey, we have a need. And they said, okay, look among yourselves and find the people God has raised up to meet those needs because this is how we function as a church. Luke's comments in verse 7 reinforce this idea that all of us are raised up to waiter or waitress for God. In verse 7, then the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I can't help but point out that as soon as they appointed these men, their workload greatly increased. There was more work for the apostles and for the seven. God only organizes to increase your workload. I mean, if these guys thought, hey, we're 
it wasn't a, a thing of, hey, we're too busy and let's get a bunch of people doing it because many hands make light work. Because as soon as they delegated, God brought thousands more into the church, multiplying the church. And so work is always going to increase, never decrease. You know, we really do need to have a whole different way of looking at our involvement in the church. You're always going to be doing more and more and more. Notice the comment, though, about a great many Jewish priests becoming believers. Seeing what was happening, these men who had dedicated their lives to serving God in the temple gave their hearts to Jesus. They understood that the way into the presence of God was no longer through rites and rules and rituals, but through a relationship with the Lord. Why mention this just now? It almost seems out of context, doesn't it? And a great many of the priests believed. Well, let me give you one possible reason. It's just speculation, but it's, it's, it's a good one, I think. The priests were the guys charged with spiritual ministry and serving. They were a separate special group within the population of Jews who carried out the work of God on behalf of the people. When Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven, he put an end to the Jewish priesthood once and for all. Now every believer is considered a priest of God. We can go before God and we can all minister for God. Peter, in his epistle, will call us a royal priesthood. And, and so that's why we don't have a priesthood. There aren't lay people and priests. They're just Christians who serve in their various capacities. God sees all of us as saints and as priests. All a priest did was represent men to God and God to men, and that's what we're called to do. Luke's mention of the priests converting punctuates the theme of this story, that the whole congregation is called to serve. God gives you gifted men who wait upon his word, and you in turn waiter his word to others as you are raised up a kingdom of priests who minister one to another. Work on the prerequisites and then volunteer to help out. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. Their simplicity amazes me. We complicate them. We organize them into systems of thought and understanding. We over-organize when really you just want to infuse us with the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, for the organizing and the organization that we have here at our fellowship, but more, Lord, for the fact that we're a living organism with so many people serving in so many different ways and, and places in our body. And I pray that all of us, Lord, would catch the vision of serving more and more and more as we see the day approaching, the day of your return, that we would be pouring ourselves out, Lord, when, with all the available resources and time and talent and treasure that we have to serve your body so that more would come and receive, Lord, your word and that we would multiply and multiply as we see the day approach. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Hubi. Uh, we'd love to pray for you after the service. Some of the guys will be down here to do that. If there's something on your heart that you want to reveal or share, some need that you have, come on down and do that. Uh, cafe's open. 
spend some time. It's kind of a gloomy, dreary day. Get some coffee, get your heart going. As always, meet someone you've never met before. Uh, even if you think you're the loneliest person in the church, you came to church today, nobody said hello to me. I just, this is it. I'm on my last, you know, attempt to go to church. Uh, reach out, you reach out. I mean, if you're the only one, if, if you've never been here before, if you're here and you don't recognize anybody, man, you've got a lot of people you can say hello to. Reach out to somebody. If they're unfriendly, report it to me. And then find somebody who looks friendly at least. But anyway, meet somebody that you don't know and uh, try and get interconnected with folks in that way. May God bless and keep you this week in Jesus' name.